0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Recognize that you are in control of your financial destiny. Whether or not uh, you realize it, or whether or not there are people around you that are you know, that are trying to take control of your financial destiny, Um, ultimately, you're going to be a beer, bear the risks and consequences and rewards. uh, So you should take charge of it. Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Real Estate Lab podcast. In this lab, we decode the stories, secrets and skills of the most brilliant minds in real estate investing. Then turn their wisdom into practical
0: advice and knowledge that we can use to boost our income. And now let's turn it over to our host V. It's a great day to be alive and to invest in real estate. My name is V Ku and you're now listening to my show, The Real Estate Lab Podcast. Hey, it's the third week of the new year. Are you on track with your goal? What is your goal for 2020? Mine is to buy a mobile home park this year. If I can support you and your goal in any way, hey, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. You can get to me at v at RealEstateLab.live, or you can simply schedule a call at www.callwithv.com. All right, our guest for today came highly recommended by Yona Weiss. He is the founder of 401kCheckbook.com, which give investor like yourself direct control over your retirement funds. He's also the founder of AgentFinancial.com a company that specializes in tax strategy, entity, and financial services to real estate professionals. Before the launch of his company, Reassure LLC, our guest served as director of CoMetrics Partners. Our guest today is Mr. Bernard Reese. In today's episode, we will discuss about a tax that you might have to pay and are not aware about. If you're using a self-directed IRA to invest in real estate, pay attention. If you have any kind of retirement account or QRPs, qualified retirement plans, make sure to pay close attention to this episode. Now, before I get going, make sure you hit the subscribe button, leave a review and give me a five-star rating on iTunes. If you haven't yet, make sure to check out our free Facebook community at www.facetwork.com eastwestventures.co slash AIMS. Okay, let's dive into our episode today with Mr. Bernard Reese. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Lab podcast. We have an awesome, awesome guest today. He is so special. He has so many titles that I don't even know where to begin with. Bernard, you're a CPA, CPCU, ARM and ACI. What are all these letters mean?
1: All right. Uh, CPA is very recognizable. CPA is Certified Public Accountant. CPCU, ARM, and ACI are all risk management designations. Uh, so those relate to taking a really deep dive into risk and insurance, but not in the way that people technically generally think about insurance. It's about really about understanding and managing risk knowing and understanding how insurance companies operate. So it's a deep
0: dive into risk management. So how did you get involved in the insurance side and also get involved in the CPA side? The two <laughs> things are not even related. Uh, that's what you'd
1: think. And absolutely, I, I, that's a fair question. So for the most part, I'm really into analysis, taxes, financial stuff, and recognizing that all this stuff all this financial stuff is really interrelated. And there really is a very specific tax aspect to this uh, because insurance companies actually have some really, really great tax advantages. Uh, So insurance companies get to do some pretty cool stuff. We could probably do a podcast uh, about that in its own right. Uh, But the idea is to sum it up in a really, really, in a nutshell. uh, When you pay your insurance premiums for your liability insurance, Uh, The company takes in, say you pay $1,000 in premium. Uh, Well, the company took in $1,000, the insurance company, but they may only pay that out never or over 20 years, 30 years, right? Insurance company takes in hundreds of millions of dollars of premium um, each year or billions of dollars um, with the expectation that they're going to pay some of it out over time. But guess what? They get to take a tax deduction this year for just about all of that money. So you take in a billion dollars of revenue, but you don't pay taxes on it this year because you tell the IRS, this is money is not really profit because our actuaries tell us that over the next 50 years, we're going to have to pay out a big chunk of this. So therefore they get a tax deduction. They don't have to recognize that revenue. Um, so insurance companies are really neat for a tax purpose. And frankly, that's really how I got into this in the first place is really to from the tax side. But to really do anything properly, uh, you got to understand every component of it. And for that reason, I had to learn and master every nuance of insurance and risk management.
0: So how do we on the real estate side uh, do the same as the insurance company? What are the, some of the vehicles that you have been uh, studying and you see that it it's really is an awesome strategy to uh, shelter some of this tax?
1: Yeah, well, there are so many different vehicles and there's so many different real estate strategies. I think you know perhaps the good ones to focus on are qualified retirement plans and self-directed IRAs. But of course, in different scenarios, you know, real estate investors we may be talking about using S corporations, C corporations, and other entities and other tax strategies. Be they 1031 exchanges, cost segregation, uh, you know, so many different things that real estate investors. Can use or should consider using, uh, but everybody's got a different investor profile. But you know, tax shelter, retirement accounts really apply to everybody, especially to people that are considering investing passively in real estate. For those people, what they have to think about are QRP's, uh, self-directed IRAs, uh, and I think that's a good topic that should
0: appeal to the broadest array of listeners. So for QRP and self-directed IRA. Is QRP just a fancy name for solo 401k? That is a great way of presenting it. Uh,
1: Technically, it isn't. In practice, it is. Um, And I'll explain to you what I mean by that. Uh, QRP really stands for Qualified Retirement Plan, uh, which encompasses just potentially an infinite number of tax-sheltered accounts. Uh, so just some examples of qualified retirement plans are 401k plans, defined benefit plans, cash balance plans, profit sharing plans. So there really are so many types of qualified retirement plans. And in the industry, that's abbreviated as QRP. But when it comes to using qualified retirement plans for real estate, to my knowledge, anybody that's talking about using a QRP is talking about using a solo 401k. So even though you know they may not call it a solo 401k, uh, what's being discussed is a solo 401k. So while QRP, again, can technically refer to almost any type of retirement plan, uh, when we talk about the real estate investment arena, uh, we're talking about solo 401k.
0: Okay, so can you talk about some of the um, similarity and the differences between solo 401k, QRP, and the self-directed IRA? Yes, the,
1: you know, there are a lot of similarities, but there are some very important differences. And QRP 401K, uh, you know, has some benefits over using an IRA. At the same time, you have to qualify for that. So while everybody can have a self-directed IRA, or what we focus on, you know, is the checkbook control IRAs where you actually get the money in a bank account, you know, that's something that everybody can have. But the QRP 401k has some very specific requirements, and in practice, most of most of us, you know, most of us will not qualify uh, for a solo 401k. More Americans than ever do qualify for it, and if you qualify, it, you definitely want to use a solo 401k. But for everybody out there, for everybody, a self-directed IRA can work. So let's talk a bit about what each of those are and what it takes to qualify for each one of those. And if I may ask you, V, uh, do you have any ex- prior experience with uh, QRP 401k?
0: Not for uh, not 401k or QRP, but self-directed IRA for sure. I've been doing this for about 10 years now and uh, I've sent a num- numbers of people over to a custodian here in town to set up the self-directed uh, account to lend money out.
1: And have you... Do you have any experience with, uh, you know, checkbook 401k, checkbook IRA? So an IRA, it actually gives you direct control of the money in a bank account.
0: Yes. And uh, I learned very quickly that I don't want to keep on doing that because if you do something wrong where you do a prohibited transaction, uh, your IRA account is done.
1: Yes, that is. And that's true. That's a great point. One thing that everybody's got to be aware of uh, when using any of these types of accounts are the prohibited transaction rules. So whether you're using a 401k or some self-directed IRA structure, you've got to be aware of the prohibited transaction rules. Um, In practice, uh, well, not a, you know, an IRA, actually, this is one of the good areas to talk about one of the benefits of the 401k over the IRA. So in an IRA, if you engage in a prohibited transaction, that's kind of broken the IRA. That's it. It's not an IRA anymore but inside of 401k if there is an inadvertent prohibited transaction it can be corrected so in an ira prohibited transactions cannot be corrected in a 401k prohibited transactions prohibited transactions can be corrected and so there's much 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 greater safety uh when using a checkbook 401k versus
0: using an ira and okay So how do you correct uh, a mistake like that in a 401k?
1: So in a checkbook 401k, you're able, two things, you're able to kind of just undo it. You're able to undo it. And the tax, potential tax um, on it is 15%, kind of as, whereas in an IRA, it just, it's the end of the IRA when the prohibited transaction happens. And have you ever seen any prohibited transaction? You know, maybe it's not a question to be live with, but you know, what kind of prohibited transactions are, are you concerned about that can show up inside of an IRA?
0: Well, what I, what we were trying to do before was that I understand you cannot loan money out vertically. So you're, you to your child or to your parents, uh, you can do sideway to your brother and your cousins. So we actually went to, so my business partner and I, we went to different workshops to learn in depth about self-directed IRA about 10 years ago. And the rule has, for prohibited transaction, I believe are still the same, but uh, the tax code changed, so a lot of things I'm not up to date
1: mm-hmm. anymore.
0: But we were just trying to see it. there are clever ways to, to play with the tax code since it's so much out there. I'm sure you can find some loophole that you can play with it, and you can um, get the money out of the IRA account sooner without paying you know penalty. And
1: did you? And and I guess you learn when it comes to prohibited transactions, uh, it's always worth erring on the side of caution. It's just not worth taking chances with the prohibited transaction rules. Um, there are certain things that can fall into a gray area, uh, but in general, we say there's so many things that you can do uh, without lending money to your child or parent. You know, there are so many. You know, just do the lending to an unrelated party, and and everything's great. So there's so much opportunity that. You know, it's not worth. There's no reason to ever consider taking a chance uh, with the prohibited transactions. That being said, you know there's that much greater safety in using a 401k because the prohibited transactions can be undone. And to take that further, let's talk a bit about some of the other distinctions between the 401k and the IRA. So an IRA is something that just about any American can have, but a checkbook 401k has to be tied to a business. Only a business can sponsor, can create a checkbook 401k or any other qualified retirement plan. So the first condition that we'd be looking for, for somebody to set up a checkbook 401k is to ensure that they have a business. And a business has to be a certain type of business. So it can't be somebody that has investments. Um, does not have a business for the purposes of creating a checkbook 401k. For the purpose of checkbook 401k, you need the kind of business that's an active trader business, not an investment. That's another thing that we encounter oftentimes is people that will think they've got a business because they have an LLC. From the IRS's perspective, an LLC does not create a business; it's having business activity. So if you've got business activity but you have no LLC, you can have a checkbook 401k. But if you've got an LLC and it's kind of just sitting there and you're not actually engaging in business activity, uh, then you cannot, you cannot create a checkbook 401k. So that's the first component of it again. It's having a business, understanding what does and what does that constitute a business.
0: Okay. Now, so let me stop you there for a second here. Can you define the level of, of activity needed? So for instance, if I'm just like a direct sale network marketing, I just join some company, I have a business and I may or may not make money, but you know, as active business.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great question. And there is no definitive answer to that. That's the truth. A business can be part-time. And the IRS says as much, the courts tell us as much. We know a business can be part-time. But, and a business doesn't have to make money to be a business. It's really about engaging in an activity with some measure of consistency for the purpose of generating profit. You don't have to actually generate a profit technically, but if you never generate a profit, it may not be a business. But just to give you some extreme examples, have you ever heard of Uber?
0: Yeah. Have you ever
1: heard of WeWork?
0: Yes. Are those businesses? I would say no, because they keep losing money.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Right. So these are bonafide businesses that are losing money, right? They've never made a profit. They're losing billions of dollars, billions and tens of billions and hundreds of billions of dollars, but it's a business. Uh, So, Those are businesses. So again, just to illustrate, a business does not have to make money. But as you say, you know, somebody is doing something sporadically and it doesn't make any money. You know, if the IRS ever looks at that, they may say, hey, this is not a business. So definitely, you know, if you have something that's not clearly a business, it's kind of a side hustle. Uh, You want to either be able to show that you're really doing some hustling um, and it's nice for if you're making money. Uh, But you know, obviously, every business, every startup business loses money. You generally take some time to, to be profitable. So, the bottom line is there's no definitive answer, but if, if, if you're engaging in something uh, consistently, you know, pursuing a profit, it's a business.
0: Okay, I, I want to take it to another extreme here. Let's say I create this business and I understand that the IRS, you at some point have to make a profit. Otherwise, your hobby is not a a business, right? So I'm trying to see if I just have a a business and I lose money for a few years, I create this this QRP for that business, then I go out of business, create another company, another business. Can I create another QRP? Uh,
1: A couple of things. You can can use the same QRP, actually. That's the truth. You can actually use the same one. Uh, But to be clear... Um, If a company never makes money, it doesn't necessarily become a hobby. The hobby rules are there to give the IRS the ability to look at something and say, this was never a business. But, right, WeWork almost ran out of money, right? They were run run out of money today. They were just bailed out, right, by Japanese banks. Right. Right. Had WeWork run out of money and shut their doors, um, the IRS could never have come to WeWork and said, you're a hobby. Your 401k plan is was not a 401k plan, you were not entitled to any business tax deductions, right? If, some, if the IRS says something is a hobby, you lose all your business tax deductions, you lose so many things. Uh, so it's the, the IRS has the ability to say, hey, that was not a business, that was a hobby. And the fact that you never made money is just kind of like one of the circumstantial things that the IRS may say, this looks like it was never a business because you never made money. Uh, but when something is clearly a business. Um, it's a business, even if you never, never, never become profitable. So it's, it's more of like a clue. You know. If somebody, somebody does something for years and they're never profitable, and otherwise it doesn't look like a business because they, you know, they only spent an hour, a month on it, that's when the IRS will say, this is not a business. You don't have a profit motive here. You're not trying to make money because it doesn't look like you're trying to make money. To recap, even if you never make money, you'd still say, hey, that was a business, right? If you created a QRP for that business, that means you're taking the position, this is a business. I'm trying to make money here. I have a profit motive. Um, If it doesn't work out, well, hey, we know most startups go out of business. That's what happens. It will, you know, it's a business. And if you eventually start a new business, of course, you can have a QRP for that business as well.
0: That's great. That's awesome. Okay, so let's go back to your point earlier. So, to have a QRP, you need to have a business. So, and we have just defined what a business is, and you could have, you can make money or not as long as you have business activity, you qualify. And what else?
1: So, you've got that right that business activity, which means you've got a profit motive and you've got some measure of consistency. Now, being that the most economical way to do this is to do this with a QRP for a solo business. We're generally looking for somebody that has a business that does not have any employees, full-time employees that are not owners of the business. So let's clarify that. What are we trying to get at over here? And why does this make it, why is this a qualifying attribute? Well, QRPs or your regular company 401k plan can have lots of risks and costs associated with it. There's a lot of compliance work that has to be done for your standard QRP the reason why that's the case is because the IRS and Congress are trying to protect the company employees, the people that are not the business owners. So they make all sorts of compliance rules and if you break the rules, the penalties can be severe. But when you've got a business where the only participants in the 401k plan, the only participants in the for, in the QRP are owners of the business, Congress says, "Hey, we don't have to protect any employees over here. Uh, anybody that's in this company is an owner." or a spouse of the owner, you know, married to one of the owners. So we don't have to protect anybody here. We can kind of put aside all those rules. All that compliance work just goes away when there are no employees that are not business owners. So to sum up, the second thing we're looking for, we're looking for that kind of business where the business, only people in the business that are working full time are owners of the business. So that's number two.
0: What about in the, Situation where you are the owner and you're running this business, but you have 1099 employees.
1: Okay, so as long as they're truly 1099 employees, that's okay Uh because they're not 1099 employees. You're either 1099 or an employee. Right? (laughs) Exactly. That's the idea. So a 1099 is an independent contractor. They're not really part of your business. And right, you can imagine, think about this way, right? Do you have to, every company uses contractors. Do they have to include those contractors in their 401k plan? No. Of course, of course not. Uh, so if your company is using contractors, um, you don't have to include them in the 401 k plan. Now, that's a question in and of itself, right? If somebody is, right, think of it this way um, the only people that you have to include in a 401 k plan are those that work 1,000 hours per year or more. If somebody's working, doing 1099 contract work for you for 1,000 hours, um, you may want to consider are they really a contractor or an employee, uh, which is a question of itself. But so long as they're not employees, they're 1099 contractors
0: you're all good. Okay. So that's number two. You need to have uh, like a business where you are the owner and you don't have employees. That's right.
1: Now you can have partners. You got business partners because they're also owners of the company. And you, you, ideally you want them each to own you know, at least 5% of the business. So, so long as you that's the scenario. Um, again, if you have part-time workers that are doing less than a thousand hours per year, you can have that solo QRP. So that's really it, the two requirements. And again, with today's side gig economy, more Americans than ever can have the solo QRP. At the same time, I venture to say most Americans still cannot because you have to have your own biz trader business and not have any employees. So while we set up these checkbook solo 401ks and we want to set them up for as many people as we can, um, it's very important to be cautious about getting these set up if you're not a good fit for it.
0: Have you ever seen anyone screw up so bad where a 401k is? You know, they just have to pay the penalty, the 15% penalty, consistently.
1: Oh, absolutely not. I have never seen that. Um, I've seen things that should not have been done, but I'm going to leave that uh, for off the air discussion.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask you just you know see what's the most creative way someone have came up with to, you know, use this QRP?
1: Yeah, it's not, there's not, it's not that there's so much room, you know, with the creativity side, because when the the rules there are fairly clear, um, and and we feel it's not worth taking chances with them. Um, It's not worth taking liberties of this. And it's almost like uh, a total, what should we say, cognitive dissonance. You know, people, if you want to engage and you know people that use a qrp it means to say hey I want to pay, play by the rules I want to look at the tax code and look at what the tax code gives me and within the rules of the tax code maximize what I can do. If somebody's the kind of person that just wants to break the law you know there are a lot of other things that they can do. Using a QRP means to say hey I'm the kind of person that wants to play within the rules and I don't want to have risk with the IRS. I want to do what is legal and within that world do the most that I can.
0: So within the QRP, what kind of tax liability are we talking about here? What do we have to pay Uncle Sam's here? Okay, so awesome question.
1: So QRP is actually going to have, you know, when you think about any kind of tax vehicles out there, it's the one with the absolute least high tax liability for the most part. QRP's right; they function very much like IRAs in the sense that you get tax deductions if you use a. You know, tax deductible QRP. And if you use a Roth QRP, uh, you don't get the tax deductions, but all earnings are forever tax free. Uh, so, for the most part, using QRP, you have no tax liability, very much, very similar to IRAs. But it has some substantial tax benefits over an IRA, particularly uh, within the real estate investing arena. Uh, so, the first tax benefit is you can get much greater. uh, Just whatever you can do in the IRA world, inside of the QRPs, you can just magnify that. So with an IRA, Roth IRA, traditional IRA, uh, the most you can put in on an annual basis is $6,000. Whereas with a QRP, you can put in 56K. So think of it as IRA tax deductions or Roth IRA on steroids. Uh, So it's, it's just much, much more powerful. The magnitude is much greater than an IRA. The, the second thing is there are certain cases where even tax-sheltered retirement accounts and really any not-for-profit entity can be subject to tax. There are some really great exceptions to that tax for QRPs. So have you ever heard of uh, UBIT? Have you ever heard of UBIT, UDFRI, UBTI?
0: Yes, uh, UBIT is unbusiness uh, related income.
1: So yeah, UBIT is unrelated business income tax. Oh, okay. And where you're most likely, like when would that tax potentially apply? So the words most relevant to real estate investors is when they have something called UDFI, unrelated debt financed income. And when you have UDFI, which you may be wondering, you know, we'll talk for a moment what that is. I know it sounds a bit like UFO. There's a potential for tax liability. And there's a really great carve-out that exempts QRPs from UDFI created by real estate. So what is UDFI? UDFI stands for Unrelated Debt Financed Income. And it's what you have uh, when a tax-free entity borrows money to invest. And it's important to note this is not unique to IRAs and 401ks or any tax-free entity. You know, any charitable organization that doesn't pay taxes, a non-for-profit, if it borrows money, goes to a bank, borrows money, and then invests that money, there's the potential for tax there. And when now UDFI applies to any tax-sheltered entity, but QRP's are exempt from UDFI uh, related to real estate. So a QRP, 401k, or whatever we're going to call it, if it borrows money for a real estate investment, there is no UDFI. But if an IRA invests money you know in real estate using borrowed funds, it, there is a potential for UDFI there. Um, so that's a really, really great benefit of the QRP over 401k, but at the same time, it's very important to put it into you know in context. You know if I were to ask you, um, now that you've heard about this UDFI thing. Uh, would you stop using self-directed IRAs to invest in real estate? Mm, depends. And w- what would it depend on? You know, w- what what would your thoughts be on that? What would it What would it hinge on?
0: I'm not sure. It's just a lawyer answer that, <laughs> that I learned.
1: <laughs> okay. Yes, you can never go wrong with it depends. Uh, and and here's the thing. Let's put this into into context. Um, you know, how does UDFI work? Um, and there are a couple of little layers of this, but the first And the most important thing to point out is as follows. Understanding how UDFI is calculated. So if I were to tell you, you can, you know, you've got $100,000 in an IRA. So first question to you is, you're going to invest in real estate. Do you want to use a QRP or self-directed IRA? What would your response be?
0: Without knowing the tax implication, I would say self-directed IRA.
1: V, what's going on? We just spoke about all the benefits of a QRP. Well, I know,
0: but I'm saying if that's, I'm I'm just a normal listener, right? We yeah, just learning about this for the first time and before this episode, I would say self-directed IRA. Yeah,
1: okay, hundred percent right. Right, I, I get that completely. So the answer would definitely be QRP. Um, is for especially because of the QRP does not have this UDFI, and most most real estate deals have leverage. In fact. That's why you want to invest in real estate is because you can go to the bank, get the bank, get, give you 60 to 80% of the money. There's a potential for UDFI, which the QRP is going to be accepted from, in contrast with the self-directed IRA, uh, which may have to pay some tax there. Now, that's great for the folks that qualify for a QRP, but the folks that do not qualify for the 401k, you know, I've seen lots of folks that have been talked out of using IRAs for real estate because of UDFI. So it's important to understand why that is generally a mistake. If you can put $100,000 in in your IRA and put that into into a real estate deal, you can do an all cash deal with $100,000 and not pay any tax. No UDFI, no potential for UDFI even. Or you're given the choice, hey, you can take your $100,000, get $300,000 from the bank, do a $400,000 deal, but you'll have to pay tax on 75% of the income. Which would you prefer?
0: We'll pay tax.
1: Yeah, because I mean, of course, if you'd like, you can do the $100,000 deal and have no tax. But again, you can do a $400,000 deal and pay some tax. That's definitely the way to go. So the key thing to understand is that even in the event that UDFA applies, it does not apply to your total investment. It's only applies to the portion of the return that's generated by borrowed money. So it's not as if you borrow money, all of a sudden your IRA becomes taxable. It does not. It's only the portion of the deal that was financed with borrowed money can potentially be taxable. Uh, So you don't lose by taking the loan. Um, You come out Mm -hmm. way ahead because on the contrary, you get the benefit of leverage and your principal, your IRA's investment will always be tax-free. It's the bank's money that would be subject to tax. Uh, So that's the first thing that I think that people have got to understand uh, when they think about UDFI and recognize that UDFI should not intimidate them or should not stand in their way because you're always coming out ahead, almost always coming out ahead with taking taking that loan. Now, the other thing to understand is, for the most part in real estate, uh, V, based on your experience, in the how much taxes do real estate investors pay? Very very minimal. That's right. So real estate investments generally actually have no taxable income. So if you have no taxable income, there's no UDFI. Uh, So just like your regular real estate investor, you get your depreciation deduction, your mortgage interest deduction. You get all those great tax deductions that real estate has. Um, So after all your leverage, you have no income. You have no taxable income. You have cash flow, but you have no taxable income. Well, same thing inside of an IRA. Um, Even if the IRA has the potential for UDFI, it's generally a phantom thing. You don't see it. It doesn't exist because you're not half taxable income. You have all those tax deductions to offset it. Even within an IRA, you're generally not going to see UDFI.
0: So Bernard, what you're saying is, let's just clarify something. Earlier, you mentioned, let's say we have $100,000. We're taking a loan from the bank and we only have to pay UDFI taxes on 75% of the income. Is that because we are leveraging 100000 to get another 300000 and more buy a $400,000 property? And that's the proportion that you have to pay taxes on based on the income? That-
1: that's That's exactly it. It's oversimplified, but that's the concept. The idea is that you're paying taxes only on the portion that was financed with debt. You don't have to pay taxes. Your IRA is tax-free, and it stays tax-free, right? The only way an IRA really is going to pay taxes is if you break the IRA. right? But over here, you're doing a passive real estate investment, which is you know which is a great investment for an IRA. Uh, OK the fact that you took some of that outside money, so that outside money is really not IRA money. And so the returns generated by that outside money will be
0: taxable. Okay, so let's say in terms of a syndication, let's say you have this QRP and you want to partner in a syndication. You buy membership share in an LLC and the syndicator now, after he or she bought the building, goes to your friend's, uh, Yona Weiss at Madison Specs and you were cost sex right, mm-hmm. then write off everything. Do cost sex? You do bonus depreciation. So you, now you have a huge phantom loss. You don't pay taxes on on that.
1: That that that's exactly it. Um, cost segregation is something you definitely got to talk to Yona about all the ins and outs. In practice, you know the you know even without cost segregation, you're generally not going to have income in the first couple of years of a real estate investment with or without cost segregation. The real benefit of cost segregation is to create losses. Now, are you going to have a benefit from the loss? Whether or not you benefit from real estate losses, you know, really depend on being a real estate professional for the most part. Even without cost segregation, you generally will not have any taxable income. Uh, The benefit of the cost segregation is to create a loss in year one.
0: Right. And by having a loss, you don't have any income. And so you don't
1: have. To... I, I'll illustrate a bit. Okay. Um, usually, in the first couple of years of an investment, even without cost segregation, you're not going to have any taxable income. So, like, once you take your whatever your profit is, right, the rental income comes in. But once you deduct your standard depreciation deductions, you deduct your mortgage interest, you deduct all your operational costs um, during the first couple of years of a deal. Um, you just won't have income. Once you subtract your expenses, you will not have uh, taxable income, right? And the key right. thing in real estate is is that you're while you're not having taxable income, you can still have cash flow because depreciation, which you get no matter whether or not you do a cost ex study, depreciation is a non cash expense, right? It's a kind of this it's a phantom expense in a way on the tax bill on your tax return. You write uh, we had depreciation expense. But it doesn't cost you any money. So that's that's so you get cash flow, but no taxable income. But suppose you want to take, you want to put your depreciation deduction on steroids and create a loss. That's where cost segregation is super powerful. Now, the benefit of a loss is not that you don't have income. The benefit of a loss is that you can take that loss and offset some other investment that you made um, that does have taxable income. Or you may be able to take that loss and offset your W-2 income or your business income. Not every investor, um, this is a subject of itself, but only certain people are positioned to take advantage of real estate losses. And I guess I'll clarify, there's something called passive activity loss limitations, uh, which means to say is that unless you're a real estate professional, um, you can only use real estate losses to offset real estate income. So if you the only way for somebody that 's not more or less full time real estate to benefit from real estate loss is if they have other real estate other passive real estate investments that have taxable income, um, otherwise the loss is suspended and you know get no current benefit from that uh, from that real estate loss does that make sense
0: yes totally i'm trying to see if there are other ways that um, someone who was trying to invest in a syndication has to uh, pay attention to in terms of using a QRP in a syndication?
1: So it's it, think of it as very much like using um, an IRA, except you do not have to have a custodian involved. There is no requirement whatsoever to have a custodian. So an IRA, it's in the tax code, needs a custodian. Um, so there's got to be some sort of financial institution involved. So even when we set up the checkbook, you know, even when we set up the structures that give clients IRA money in a bank account, we have to partner with custodians. Um, in contrast, 401k, there is no requirement for a custodian to be involved at all. Um, so it's actually in a way much more streamlined than using any type of IRA because you're definitely going to get the money in a bank account. Uh, there's no need to get any custodian counter signature. You don't have UDFI. Um, so it, in any other way, it's very much like using an IRA just just simpler and l- no potential for UDFI. so the qrp is is a really an, kind of the obvious choice for anybody that qualifies for it. Um, you know, because the UDFI thing will you will encounter it, and let's bring this full circle. Um, will you will encounter UDFI um, on a real estate syndication? is on the exit at the disposition um, is where there's the greatest potential for encountering UDFI Uh, because at that point, you know, in a successful syndication, um, right, you're going to exit after five to seven years. And the idea is that you're going to sell for much higher price than you actually paid. So at that point, you're going to be looking at a, at a gain at a taxable gain. And again, it would potentially To the IRA investor, it's going to be taxable to the extent that borrowed money is in the deal. Uh, Whereas to the QRP investor, there won't
0: be no tax whatsoever. So everything is then just tax deferred until you cash out.
1: With an IRA investor, during the first couple of years, um, you're not going to see any UDFI. If you stay in the deal long enough, um, there definitely is the potential for UDFI. um, But certainly at the disposition of the asset. Uh, When the asset, when the deal is actually exited and the the partnership wraps up, uh, right at that point, you're planning to show in the K-1, you're planning to show that you sold it uh, for a gain. Uh, That's where uh, you're going to be looking at UDFI for an IRA investor and a QRP investor will not have any of that UDFI.
0: Right. So after everything you have just explained right now, it seems like it's very easy to get into a QRP I mean, just based on the all the reason that you explain and all the things that you need to do to qualify, it seems like it's not much for for you to qualify. so why would someone still do self directed i r a over q r p if you
1: can qualify for the q r p you certainly you know in almost all scenarios that's the way to go uh there is one other one other factor, you know perhaps, but this is not the answer that, this is not going to answer your question because it just doesn't explain. Enough. Why people are not using QRP, uh, but that is Roth IRA money cannot be rolled over to a uh, 401k or QRP. So if people have money in a Roth IRA, um, it's got to be the investment has to be made through a Roth IRA. Uh, but in any other scenario, if somebody does qualify or can qualify, uh, they certainly should. Now, it's it is easy to qualify. You know, obviously, if somebody's got a business already going, they qualify. If somebody wants to qualify, it does mean that they have. They're probably going to have to change. They're going to have to be do something for that. They have to start some sort of business. Uh, now today, it's easier than ever to have a business, right? You know how many? You know, if I you know, if I had to ask you how many of your friends are doing some sort of side hustle um, or a full time hustle, you know, gig economy, freelancing, Amazon, Etsy, uh, you know some sort of something in the sharing economy, be it ride-sharing, consulting. um, There's so much opportunity to have your own business. Um, And it's something that people should consider doing for so many tax and financial reasons. But if they don't have it already to qualify for QRP, 401k, um, they're definitely going to have to do something. And some people, you know, to each their own. And everybody, some people kind, you know, don't want to change what they're doing. Some people do want to change what they're doing. Yes, by all means. If somebody can qualify um, and wants to take action and qualify for a checkbook 401k, power to them. So
0: in the situation of someone who is uh, running an Airbnb business, is that something that you would consider as qualify? That is something that I would say
1: as follows. Airbnb businesses um, is definitely something that might qualify. You want to have consistency with what you're doing in your tax return. So when people call us um, and have Airbnb businesses going on, what we try to tell them is be consistent. um, And rather than say, oh, Airbnb qualifies. Now, where are you putting it on your tax return? Are you putting it on a Schedule E or a Schedule C? And there's without getting into what should or shouldn't be done, we can do that on a different podcast if you'd like. Um, You know, all the tax rules around the Airbnb and when it might belong in Schedule E, when it might belong in Schedule C, Uh, we generally want to see something on Schedule C in order to set up a QRP.
0: Okay. And then one other business type that I want to ask you about is um, any pot-related businesses. Like if you uh, grow marijuana or you own warehouse to rent out so that someone could grow? Does that qualify? So if you're growing, that sounds like a Schedule C to me, by all
1: means. If you're renting out warehouses, that's really not a pot business. You know, incidentally, there's a, you know, you've got a cannabis business renting from you, but you're in a real you're collecting real estate rent, which would be a Schedule E, which I think is not a good fit for a, for a QRP. So if you're the grower, um, you know, you're buying and selling pot, Mm-hmm. I know, absolutely. And I know you're in, you know, you're in Colorado. Colorado is where it all began. So while <laughs> spreading to other states, uh, that's certainly the pot capital. So by all means, you've got a pot related business. Uh, it is a business. And it's really cool because think of it this way, at the federal level, right, pot is still illegal. Right? It's only the states that have allowed it. So it's really cool to realize that, hey, this is a business and we're going to, we're using federal rules, right, to a QRP, 401k is a federal concept, but this has precedent. If you think about real drugs, you know, the tax code talks about drug-related businesses. Um, and even uh, Al Capone, I think when they got and they locked him up, you know, when he was doing, they were drug running and maybe doing prohibition selling alcohol, they took him on tax evasion. But even a drug dealer in general is 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 entitled to tax deductions. Um, it's a business. You know, the fact that it runs afoul of certain federal laws doesn't mean it's not a business.
0: This is so great. This is awesome. I've not ever heard that before.
1: Yeah, I- I'm serious. Tax code talks about this. And yes, if you are running an illegal business, it's still a business. Um, and, you got, and you have to pay taxes, right? The fact that you have a pot business, which is illegal, doesn't mean you don't have to pay taxes. You have to pay taxes. The IRS can come to you for tax evasion if you don't pay taxes on your, you know, on your drug running and your uh, drug dealing. Uh, so pot business is a business.
0: Oh man, this is so great, Bernard. One last question before I let you go. What is your most favorite success or mindset quote? Can it be my own quote? Sure.
1: Got to distill this into like one pithy sentence. But can, what I'd say is, recognize that you are in control of your financial destiny, whether or not You realize it, whether or not there are people around you that are, you know, that are trying to take control of your financial destiny. Ultimately, you're going to be a beer, The risks and consequences and rewards. Uh, So you should take charge of it.
0: Awesome! Thank you so much for your time, Bernard. This has been great. I learned a lot, and I certainly did not know that, uh, you know, a drug business, just related business, uh, can you kind of write off the tax and get deduction. That was awesome.
1: Okay, awesome to have been on the show. Uh, V, thanks so much for having me on. And I'm looking forward to hearing the recording and hearing future episodes.
0: Awesome. That's the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a five stars rating and review on
1: iTunes for the Real Estate Lab podcast. Until next time, have a prolific week.